Well, it's great to be with you again. Thanks, uh, Pastor Mike, and uh, everybody for having me back. Thanks, Bruce, for setting everything up and our friendship. Um, I have to say, I really liked the uh, presentation regarding the vets. My, the longest year of my two years of my childhood was when I was 10 and 11. My father was in Vietnam for almost two years, and uh, you know, and uh, you know, and I wasn't even a Christian at the time. But my mom would have us pray, and you know, missing dad, praying for dad, and you're very aware of the sacrifices that so many men and women make, putting themselves in harm's way. All right, I want to jump into the message, and uh, I want to uh, talk about something that, uh, well, all over the world, but particularly Southern California, people are obsessed with youthfulness. (laughs) You're probably thinking, I'm glad he's talking to the person next to me, not me. (laughs) But we live in a culture, you know, globally almost, that uh, everybody's obsessed with youthfulness, in fact, just this morning, I took a few moments and uh, checked out the news, and I read that uh, a young woman, 29 years old in Brazil, she's a famous, uh, very popular television star and influencer and media and everything. She just uh, died because, of all things, she was having an operation to remove a little bit of fat from her knees and, unfortunately, develop a blood clot. But, you know... When we're at the point where we're concerned about what people think of our knees, do they look youthful or not, we we have to question where where we're at in society. Just a thought. But I want to mention two rather enigmatic things Jesus said about youthfulness. When Nicodemus came to him at night privately to ask him about what was up spiritually, what he was preaching about, the kingdom of God, and Jesus said to him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus at that time could not fathom what he was talking about. And he said, well, a, a man cannot go back into his mother's womb. This is an impossibility. But Jesus was talking about starting over as a child in a relationship with God. And then twice in the Gospels, Jesus said, I say to you, you must turn or you must be converted and become like little children or you will never enter the kingdom of God. Now notice he did not say become childlike. Some of us don't need an anointing for that. We're already good at that. But, or not childish, I should say. But he said become as a child. And in the midst of our sophistication, the midst of our blessings as the people of God and the church and all the things we've experienced of God and everything, I believe God is calling the church to relearn what it's like to be as children, to live as children in relationship to our Heavenly Father and God Almighty. I'm glad you're excited. I I paused thinking someone might say, how old are you? Amen, but we'll first go in. We'll keep going here. When uh, I got saved in 1974 at the kind of tail end of the Jesus movement, and that was a really, uh, even at the tail end of the Jesus movement that began in 66, that was a, a really wild time. It was a wide-eyed time because we were just seeing things that, you know, we thought were impossible. We were seeing people, and many of you remember those days, people that were strung out on drugs, heroin, other things, hallucinogenics, come to Christ and oftentimes being set free just like that. 
I remember uh, one Bible study I went to done by the Calvary Chapel in San Diego in the uh, about 74, 75, 76, that it was a bad night if only about 75 people got saved. Just every week there were usually hundreds of people that went running forward and people were getting set free from all sorts of things. And we had a real freedom in our souls, so to speak, for evangelism, talking to anybody and everybody, because we were just so childlike. I and the friends I was with, just an expectancy uh, that people were going to be saved. And then uh, after a few years, I got going in church leadership and varying degrees, started preaching and teaching. And uh, then I and the group of leaders I was involved with, we found out that God is still moving in power today and uh, began to start moving in prophecy and healing. We began, like uh, some of you here, we began to take in as much as John Wimber's teaching as we could. We were driving up oftentimes a couple times a month from San Diego to teaching. He was doing services. My wife and I went to the very first uh, uh, healing uh, school he did. And, uh, you know, uh, it was a really wide-eyed time for us. We had just this childlike expectation that the God who there's nothing impossible for will do, not only can do, but he will do far more than our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, more than we can understand. And so in my church that in Escondido at the time, I was part of the leadership team, we were very aggressive about praying for the sick. We loved praying for the sick, and we were learning as we went. In fact, we were so eager about praying for the sick, we almost prayed that people in our church would get sick so we could pray for them on the meetings, see what God did. But we kind of reached a, a hurdle, a plateau. We were seeing some people get healed of some things like bad backs and some sicknesses, but we weren't crossing over into the miraculous because the miraculous requires a deeper level of God's authority and power, his recreative power to come and rebuild like a blind eye or a withered limb or part of the, uh, maybe part of the stomach that's been destroyed by cancer. And we were praying and praying and praying, oh Lord, what do we need to learn? How do we go about this? How do we, how do we have a breakthrough? And uh, one Sunday morning at church, when church was ending, a woman came up to me in mid-20s and said, my mother's in the hospital. They're actually going to remove her colon tonight uh, in an operation, obviously, uh, because her colon is destroyed by cancer. And she, she said, would you come as soon as you can early this afternoon and pray that God would do a miracle so she wouldn't need the operation? And uh, I said, sure. And well, we agreed to meet in a couple of hours. I had two friends join me. But first I went home. And I really prayed aggressively, you know, for about an hour and a half. Oh, Lord, you know, we've seen you do some healings, but not create a miracle like this. How should we pray? Should we put on a southern accent and rebuke the cancer in the name of Jesus? Should we, you know, do long soaking prayers, even though, you know, we hadn't used the term soaking yet? Should we just read scriptures? How do we go about this? And, you know, God is so kind and encouraging. He didn't say anything at all. He just said, go. So we get there. We're in this hospital room. And... Uh, uh, my two friends, and it turned out it was a good thing. It was a private room she had. And I'm still thinking, Lord, how are we supposed to pray? And I said, uh, well, let's just begin, by first of all, by blessing the God. And we began to worship the Lord a little bit. 
And all of a sudden, I kid you not, uh, something that we had never, I had never experienced at that time, the heaviness of God's presence, what the Bible in the Hebrew calls the kabod of God's presence fell. And we were just overwhelmed with the sense of God's holiness, his glory, his majesty. And my two friends and I, we actually got on our knees in that in the hospital room and worshiped the Lord for about a half hour. And the heaviness lifted, we stood, and uh, we prayed for the lady, but not very long. But I said to her, God has been here. Whatever he's going to do, he's done, because where his spirit is, there's liberty. And uh, the, the daughter called me up the next morning. They never removed her colon. They, they uh, found it was... And, you know, they knew, they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt it was completely destroyed by cancer. And uh, they never removed it. She was 100% completely healed. And that first miracle we experienced, it was one of the most important lessons in ministry and in kingdom living I've ever known. And that is that it's not always what you know, but it's who you know. And I believe that God is calling us to this point to get Reimmersed in the wonder and the beauty, just like some of the songs we sang, you can have the world, but I'll take Jesus. I want to introduce you to a very, very important theological word. It's used multiple times in the book of Mark. Not the gospel of Mark, but the book of Mark DuPont. <laughs> and that, that word is discombobulated. <laughs> The word discombobulated happens, it takes place when all of a sudden you get a fresh revelation of Jesus that takes you into a whole new appreciation of the wonder and beauty of who he is. When Isaiah, in the year of King Uzziah's death, when he was caught up before the throne and gazed upon the glory of God, he said, Woe is me, for I am a lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord, the King, the Lord of hosts. And it's interesting, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talked about going from glory to glory, a revelation of the wonder of God to a greater revelation of God. Now, what I'm about to say probably does not apply to you. It's probably strictly for the person sitting next to you. But being human beings we tend to stop appreciating that which we get highly familiar with. That's why most of you that have had a long, successful marriage, you realize it takes intentionality to keep that friendship, to keep that romance alive and working. Sometimes you have to work at maintaining those date nights and having a fresh... We, we become overly familiar to the point where we... Uh, even with the blessings of God, we began to take those for granted. We can take our salvation for granted. Not you, the person next to you. But, but one of the ways God wants to wake us up is as we seek him, as we pursue him, as we walk in him, not that we can make it happen from time to time, and I think this is something that's increasingly coming to the body of Christ at this time, is an awakening to the glory, the majesty, the beauty of the Lord. I want to talk a little bit about Joshua, who ended up being the leader after Moses, and he was the one that took the Hebrew across the Jordan into the Promised Land. And uh, I'm going to begin by really talking about Joshua when he was a very young man, 
He was just a servant of Moses. He hung around Moses, would not be separated from him. And it says in way back in Exodus 33, as the Hebrew people were traveling through the wilderness, that it said, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned again into the camp, meaning he walked away from the, uh, the tent, the tabernacle, the glory of God, it says his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Even when Moses had done his worship, done his intercessory, heard from God, waited on the Lord, and then he went back to the camp, the young man Joshua, he would not leave. He just wanted to stay in the presence of the Lord. We think about uh, number 16, when uh, Moses assembled the 12 spies, that the first time around after uh, less than a year, really, as they got near to the promised land, he spent the, sent the spies to uh, uh, suss it out and spy out the land. And one of those young men was Joshua. But at that time, his name was actually Hosea. And it's interesting, the word Hosea means deliverer, but Moses changed his name to Joshua. His name went from deliverer to the Lord saves, the Lord saves. So early on, as Joshua is embarking in his destiny, he learns this lesson. It's not about him. He's not the Savior. He's not the deliverer. He's not the hero, but it's the God that he represents. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but in our ministries and in the different things we, we do for the Lord, it's so much our human nature, not yours, but the person next to you, we start thinking about all the things we do for God, all the blessings we bring for people, and all the sacrifices we make. But really, it's such a privilege to walk with the reality of Emmanuel and see what God not only does to us, but what he does through us. I'm glad three of you are excited. And then the spies went out, and they spied out the land, and just as Moses had prophesied to the people... It was an incredible land, a land flowing with milk and honey. One of the ways that the land was very, very different was it had rain. Unlike where they, the Hebrew people had been for 400 years, where everything had to be irrigated from the Nile, you know, just a very dry, arid. Although Israel is somewhat of a, a desert, they had rain and they had hills and they had crops and all sorts of things just springing up. And it was a beautiful place. And they could see, you know, these cities God was going to give them that to live in, that they hadn't built, and farms, vineyards, everything else. But uh, when they came back, when they uh, came back, 10 of the 12 spies, as many of you know the story, they gave a bad report. They said, yes, the land is beautiful. Yes, there'd be great farming. The farms and orchards are already planted. Yes, there'd be these nice cities that we don't have to build, we could live in. But there's huge giants in the land. There's fierce enemy. They have, you know, heat-seeking missiles, and they had, you know, armored Humvees and everything. I'm, I'm contextualizing. <laughs> I just want to see if you're awake. And they gave out this bad report. And, you know... That bad report of 10 people affected the destiny of over 2.5 million people. This is why we've got to be very, very careful what news you take in and how much news you take in. 
I always challenge people, for every half hour you spend watching the news and the, you know, the internet reading it or on television, whatever, all the events taking place today, you always need to go back for at least two minutes to Psalm 2, which tells us the nations will be given to Jesus as his inheritance, that the Lord laughs at his enemies. You know, with all the crises and all the questions, all the catastrophes taking place, God is, he doesn't cause these things to happen, but he's orchestrating things for just an incredible move of the Spirit that's coming, and ultimately the nations given to Jesus. But Joshua, along with Caleb, of those two spies, they said something different. They said, the Lord will be with us. In fact, they prophesied the Lord has already given them into our hands. The Lord is with us. Do not fear. They had a completely different perspective. Later on, I love what it says in the Bible about Caleb. He had a different spirit, not a different Holy Spirit, but the makeup of his soul, his hunger for God, his belief in God was different. And sometimes we just get so focused on the routines of life, the status quo, and that can happen in the life of the church as well and as we pursue the kingdom. But yet God gives us these incredible promises like 1 Corinthians 2.9 that he has far more for us than our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, more than we can begin to understand. And as we press in upon God, he not only wakes us up to the fullness of his plans for our day and age, but he wakes us up to his potential, his authority, his power, his glory on a whole different level. And then finally, and I'm not covering all this for lack of time, but God judged the Hebrew people at that time because of their unbelief, and they spent the next 38 years or so wandering in the wilderness until a new generation sprung up. And then Joshua and Caleb, the last two leaders of their generation, they led the Hebrew people across the Jordan into the promised land. And it's interesting, when the transition of leadership was taking place from Moses the great... I mean, can you imagine being asked to walk in Moses' footsteps? You know, here's the guy that, you know, brought the... Uh, in the name of the Lord, brought the plagues and everything, and brought the judgments and, you know, the Red Sea parting. You know, that'd be a tough act to follow. But when... God uh, called Joshua to step up. The Lord said to him in Joshua chapter 1, verse 6, he said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and courageous. Be careful to do all according, according to all the law of Moses my servant commanded. Do not turn away to the right or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. If you've got your Bible, I'd like to ask you to open it to Joshua chapter 5. Just for a few moments, we'll be there. Joshua chapter 5. And we'll pick this up. Oh, let's start in verse 10. The Hebrew people... Actually, with, I don't have time for it, but the priests took the ark, God's glory, and they stood in the middle of the Jordan River. The waters parted, 
And by the way, let me throw something at you, just a freebie for your consideration. If you're in a place of impossibility right now, whenever you're between a rock and a hard place, wherever you're like the Hebrew people, between a sea that you, that's blocking your way and an army chasing after you, God will begin to move in miracles. He begin to part the waters, just like he did for the Hebrew people. And just as he did in parting the flooded river at that time, the, the Jordan River, so they walked across. But the glory of God was there, and the Lord had actually instructed um, Joshua. He said, keep your eyes on me, because I'm going to lead you away. You have not gone before. And so they crossed over, and the men all went through circumcision, not the best thing to do if you're about to go into battle, like they were. But it was significant of sanctifying themselves on a deeper level for the ways of God. And it says in verse 10, While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th of the month in the evening in the plains of Jericho. And it's very significant, the fact that they camped at Gilgal. The word Gilgal in the Hebrew means complete circle meaning in the destiny of the Hebrew people, they'd come a full circle from a generation before. How many of you saw the Jesus Revolution, the movie? You know, most of you probably saw it. And, uh, you know, I was, I didn't, as I said, I didn't get saved until about uh, eight years after uh, the Jesus movement began. Um, from probably about, uh, I got saved in 82, uh, or eight, I'm sorry, 74, but about 82, to about 88, um, I uh, had a bit of a friendship with Lonnie Frisbee that God used so prolifically, you know, in the Jesus movement, and uh, learned a lot about the prophetic through him. But I have felt, and uh, my wife and I have talked about this for about, uh, oh, actually seven or eight years now, that we feel like we're coming into a Gilgal season. Not that God ever does the same thing twice. We need to be careful we don't make monuments to the past because God is so creative, he never does the same thing twice. But there's coming a freedom uh, globally, but particularly to Southern California for the gospel to begin in new prolific ways. And that movie that for the most part I think was very accurately done, but I believe the timing of it and uh, was, it's an encouragement to us, and just the freedom we're reminded of at that time for hundreds of thousands of people coming from drugged-out lifestyles and alternative religions and all sorts of things to come quickly to Christ. What we view as so difficult, nothing's impossible for the Lord. But it says in verse 11, And the day after the Passover, that very day, they ate of the produce of the land. They had some of the first fruits and unleavened cakes and parched grain that they prepared. And it says, And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the provision of the land. And there was no longer the manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land. And sometimes we can get so focused on the blessings we're familiar with that we allow the present good to become the enemy of the future great. Sometimes we can be so satisfied with where we're at, it becomes very difficult to hear the Holy Spirit say to us, I have more for you than your eyes have seen, your ears have heard, more you can understand. And we lose the internal impetus, the hunger to drive. Oh God, what are you doing? What are you saying? 
And it says in verse 13, because they're outside, they're a bit of distance from Jericho right now, and Jericho was going to be the first major battle in the promised land. Now, for 40 years, that generation had lived with the prophetic promise that God would supernaturally be with them, and every enemy they went against in the promised land, they would drive out. They would have victory after victory after victory. And so this first battle of Jericho was of ultra importance because if they did not have a significant victory with none to little loss of life, they would be so demoralized they would give up on those prophetic promises they had. This was the battle of all battles. This was the battle that was going to decide their future whether they took the land or not. And actually, archaeologists tell us that Jericho... It was an armed fortress, and the walls were some 14 feet thick. And the Bible even says they had great warriors. It was a significant army within there. And so this was no light thing they're going against. So Joshua is under a little bit of pressure here. Some of you who may have been in sales when you had to give a presentation about a product, and if this presentation goes well, you know, it's going to, you know, you're just off, you know. And some of you who have maybe had an oral exam or something like that. But we all know certain situations we've been in or are going to be in that radically are going to impact our future. This was one of them. And it says that Joshua, probably wondering, oh God, oh God, oh God, just like me back years before in that hospital room, oh God, how should we pray? Joshua saying, thinking, how in the world are we going to take this armed fortress? But it says in verse 13, when Joshua's by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. Say looked. He looked. He was looking to see what the Lord would show him. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. What a great day to honor the veterans, eh? I lived in Canada for six years, so every word, the word, every few months the word A sneaks into my vocabulary, but I smack it back down. Our, our two daughters were born in California. We moved to Canada when they were like uh, three and one, and then our son, uh, a few years later, was born in Canada. We lived there for six years. When they began to incorporate the word A in a serious way into their vocabulary, I thought, we're out of here now. <laughs> but anyway, no, I love Canada. But he saw this man, a warrior, a mighty warrior, standing there with a drawn sword. And there's times when we go seeking after the blessings of the Lamb of God, and there's times instead God wants to give us a revelation of the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And I believe this is a key part of the awakening that's coming to the church of not just the salvation of Christ, but the majesty of Christ, the authority of Christ. Twenty of you are excited. We're we're gaining momentum here, Pastor Mike. (laughs) And Joshua did not recognize him. There will come times, if you have a committed lifestyle of pressing in upon the Lord, there will come times where God will appear to you in ways you have not experienced before. Because he is so vast in who he is. 
In the Psalms, it says the glory of God is unsearchable. St. Augustine put it this way. God is a vast circle, and no matter how far you go towards the center of the circle, you're never going to come to the center of it. And no matter how far you go on the uh, uh, outskirts, you're never going to exhaust the wonder of who he is. And this is why Paul could exhort us to say, to seek God, to go from glory to glory. And it's an utter tragedy when a Christian or a church settles into routine and says, well, this is all there is. When God has more for us than our eyes to see and ears to hear. You know, he just wants to open up the eyes of our heart. So he went up to him. He didn't recognize, said, are you for us or for our adversaries? You know, um, in 1992, shortly after we moved to Toronto, I gave a, uh, it turned out to be a four-page prophetic word, but a prophetic word about an outpouring was coming to the whole, uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit to our church in Toronto. We were only about 120 at that time. And the Lord said, I'm going to pour out my spirit. It's going to go to the nations. And uh, it's going to happen in a year and a half or so. And uh, in January of 94, that moves hit. And it was just wild. And within literally three weeks, we had people flying in from the nations. They estimate that we had between five and six million visitors over the next six years to our little church. But the ways God moved were so perplexing to so many people. There's a phrase I love that God offends the mind to reveal the heart. I had actually three different visions about that move over the year half leading up to him. One of them, I saw the Father and Jesus sitting on the throne. The Father was breathing his breath, his Ruach, breath of life upon the world. And Jesus was laughing. And I thought, well, this, this, I don't know about this vision. Jesus doesn't laugh much. But uh, I began to understand what it said in Psalm 2 again, that the Lord laughs at his enemies. And when the Holy Spirit began to hear at our church, sometimes we'd have conferences with 5,000 people, and there'd be a, sometimes 500 or 1,000 people at one time, overwhelmed with the joy of the Lord. Back in our archives at the church there, there's a video testimony of this couple that came all the way from South Africa to one of our conferences. And they spent five days in a row, you know, throughout the meetings, just laying on the floor laughing by the Spirit of the Lord, so, we, you know, our, our crew asked if we could do an interview. They said, well, what's going on? What, what, what is God doing in you? And they shared that for years, their marriage at, back to their home in South Africa had been so bad that they'd been threatening to divorce each other for years and years. They said, we've gone through counseling. We've attempted deliverance. We've done this. We've done that. Nothing seemed to work. And the interviewer said, well, how bad was the marriage? And the guy said, one, one night, my wife was chasing me through the house with a butcher knife. And you thought you had marital problems. But they, they, they heard about the move of the Spirit in our church, and they said, let's give the Lord one more chance to do with our hearts. So they came. And the first night, they were so overwhelmed by the Spirit of God, they got back to their hotel room, they looked at each other, they began to start weeping, and they asked each other forgiveness. They repented each other over the hardness of the hearts of the years. And right there, just the two of them with the friends of the Lord, they redid their marriage vows. Now, I'm not saying when they got back to South Africa, they maybe didn't get, need to get some help working on you know, the patterns of their marriage and things like that. But you see, 
that oftentimes God comes in ways that we haven't previously experienced, and this is why we dare not make monuments to the past. He said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the Lord said, no, I come now as commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. God has always, had always been with them in that journey through the wilderness quite powerfully at times. But the Lord said, now I have come. And we know the mystery of Christ in us, as Paul talked about, being born again. The Spirit of God is always with us. And we, we, you know, I love this church. I love your history of the movement of the Holy Spirit in this church. I love your value of healing and the prophetic and touches of God. But yet, God has more for you, more for all of us than our eyes have seen, our ears have heard. And you're on the verge of something. Whose side are we on? Sometimes, whether we realize it or not, and I'm speaking to the person next to you, our prayer life kind of consists of this. God, would you bless what I want to do? <laughs> Jesus said, the things, I only do the things I see the Father doing. And here, the presence of God, the commander of the Lord of the host, when Joshua says, oh, you're on our side of the enemy, he said, no, I'm not on your side, bub. You get on my side. Every now and then I preach in Kentucky, so the word bub has also crept into my vocabulary. <laughs> and that sometimes we have to, you know, ask ourselves, and sometimes actually the Lord wants to speak to us, says, you know, you've been doing this so long, you know, it's something I initiated, but have you made a monument to the point that where I've moved on to something else? Whose side are we on? Whose side are we on? Are you for us or adversaries? No, I'm in charge. Again, one of the things I love about uh, your leadership and the values of this church is being a people of his presence, people who highly value his presence. You know, the church is called to be Four broad categories at one time were called to be a people of community. In fact, I preached on that last time I had the opportunity to be with you. We're called to be a people of, of worship and prayer. We're called to be a people of mission. But, you know, we can do all those things, but they won't amount to a hill of beans if we don't have the presence and power of God. It's the presence and power, the strength of the Lord, that allows us to really walk in the reality of discipleship. It's the presence and power of God that anoint us to be effective in ministry and evangelism and healing. It's the presence and power of God that allow us to hear what are the ways of God and actually employ those in our lives. Psalm 105, starting in verse 1, it reads, Tell of all his wondrous works. O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Say continually. continually. I think that basically means all the time. 
Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works he has done, his miracles and the judgments he has uttered. Getting back to what I first said, that Jesus not only said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, become like a, a child in relationship with God, but twice in the Gospels, Jesus said, you must become converted, which we understand, but he also said, you must become as a child if you want to experience the kingdom. We realize the fullness of it is in heaven, but in that tension uh, between the now and the not yet, Jesus also said to seek first the kingdom of God on earth as in heaven. So when we see a broken marriage healed, when we see a shattered family come back together in love and unity, when we see someone addicted to alcohol or drugs set free, when we see people walking in ways of righteousness, when we see someone healed of cancer or a bad knee in the name of Jesus, we're seeing the kingdom of God move, the ways of the king, the quality of God's standards where you experience on earth the quality of life as it is in heaven. But there's a strength in learning to be childlike before God, not childish, but childlike. You know, if you have a a three-year-old child or a grandchild and you walk out the door of the house one morning and say, you know what we're going to do today? They say, what? We're going to jump from the front yard over the roof and into the backyard. They don't look at you and say, I'm sorry, you're too fat, you're too slow. Haven't you heard of this thing called gravity? They don't say, who do you think you are? You know, LeBron James, you know. They just say, cool, can we do it right now? God wants to bring us back, of not, not to childishness, but to a place of a childlike expectation for God Almighty to move. I want to close by um, turning to Revelation chapter 1 just for a minute and then right after that very quickly to Revelation chapter 5. Just as Joshua was powerfully used by God But when he began to enter into his destiny on a whole new level, he had to come into a greater revelation beyond what he'd experienced of God. So that's a pattern we see throughout the scriptures. I could look at other examples, but I just want to talk for a moment about the Apostle John, John the Revelator. John was the youngest of all the disciples of Jesus, and he was the closest of all the disciples of Jesus. He was the one that would actually at times be leaning his head up against Jesus' shoulders when they were at rest. He was the one that maybe James and and Peter would say, Hey, John, ask the Lord what's going on, because uh, John had the ear of the Lord. He was a prophet. He was the prophet of the three pillars of the early church, along with James and along with Peter, the evangelist. But, uh, you know, over the next 60 years or so of his life, he saw everything there was to see, every type of miracle, every type of healing, every type of deliverance. He saw and experienced revivals firsthand, first in Jerusalem and other places. There really wasn't anything in his ministry that he hadn't seen. 
And we call him John the Revelator because the greatest prophetic book of all history, that revelation was given to him when the Lord said, come up here, I want to show you things. But yet John, in his very last days, he's in exile on the island of Patmos. And we think, okay, he's in prison. But you have to understand that from the posture of John's heart. John was a father. When you read 1 John chapter 1 or so, you understand how much he emphasized being a father figure in the body of Christ. You know what the difference is between a teacher and a father? A teacher wants to correct you when you've made a mistake. A father wants to correct you because he wants you to do better in life than he himself has done. John was a caring, nurturing father. This is why Paul said you have many teachers but few fathers. John was an apostle moved in great authority and wisdom, but he also was a prophet and moved in revelation all these decades. But now he's cut off from the body of Christ. He's in exile. Much of the church at that time was suffering. Much of the church at that time in the known world lived in very serious poverty. And much of the church at that time lived under heavy persecution. And John, not only being a prophet, apostle, but being a father figure, he's cut off. He can no longer encourage and strengthen his sons and daughters in the faith, so to speak. But he's in prayer, it says, on the, in the, Lord's, on the Lord's day. And uh, where are we at here? John chapter, Revelation chapter 1. And it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants and the things are to come. Now, I could spend a lot of time on this, and I, I don't want to step on any toes here, but that's why they pay me the big money. <laughs> I believe the book of Revelation has been hijacked by those that want to solely focus on eschatology, the return of the Lord. It certainly touches on eschatology, but that's not the heart of it. The heart of it was in the midst of the warfare of the dragon, the beast, the Jezebel spirit, in the midst of the warfare and poverty that much of the church was living at that time, John had a revelation of the triumph and the majesty and the authority of Christ Jesus. The revelation of the Lord Jesus. This is the Pentecostal side over here. This is probably kind of more evangelical. Maybe you're the liturgical ones, I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but I want to ask you quickly now, as John's in a different part of his Revelation, chapter 5, and he says, I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven and earth was found worthy. And it says in verse 4, I began to weep loudly. But one of the elders said to me in verse 5, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has, over, has conquered. And so he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent on all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
And when he had taken the scroll, and the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. It wasn't a new style of song, maybe not even new lyrics, but a new song of passion and revelation from their hearts. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people on earth. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And I believe that as the church gets closer and closer to the last days, just like John on the island of Patmos facing so much discouragement in the world today, God wants to give us a greater and greater revelation of the majesty, the triumph of the beauty of the Lord. So, yeah, let's give the Lord a hand. I want to talk about coming back to a place of being childlike. Are we able to show that video in a second here? Okay, hold on just a moment. Uh, a church, I was just with the church last weekend, did a five days of meetings with them in Ephrata, Pennsylvania, a church I've had a long history with. And uh, they're a good-sized church, and they take very seriously training up the children and the young adults. And uh, they encourage them and train them, and as they can with children, how to pray for the sick. And I was just there, I said, for five days of meetings. And prior, they have a Saturday night and two Sunday morning meetings, or main weekend meetings. Prior to each service, they showed this video. And it's only two and a half minutes or so. I, I just, uh, I, I'm just so excited to show this to you. Maybe turn the lights down or however you work. That. One month ago, I was in bed. And then I asked God to pray for someone with an injury. That night, I had a dream of a um, person named Aaron. I was walking through Galilee, and I saw all these sick people. Then I was praying for them. Then I saw a person named Aaron, then I prayed for him. Then he had a broken leg, so he was healed. The next morning, then I, I woke up. I I was doing my daily routine. Then we went to the grocery store then. Me and my brother Carter, we were waiting in the car while I was getting groceries. And then I saw the person that was in my dream. I walked to him because he was walking to his car. And then I said, excuse me, can I, is, is it okay if I pray for you? And he's like, yes. And I said, what was, what's your name? And he said, Aaron. Then I said, praying. Then I said, um, can you like test your leg out and see how you, um, you feel? Then he's like, um, it feels a little, it feels, um, sore still. And then, um, he, I asked if I could pray for him again. Then he's like, yes. After I prayed for him, um, he was, um, pretty shocked that he was, he was actually functioning in life. But he just walked without the crutches. And he said that it's 100% better. He said, um, how did you know to pray for me then? I said, I had a vision of, I mean, a dream of someone I need to pray for. He went to his car, then um, he said, 
well thanks for praying for me then god's my he's a leader he can lead you through a mighty ways he's a guider and he can guide you through mighty ways this is a 11 year old boy going to bed he prays lord would you use me to heal some sick people I was a dream, and in the dream, the Lord speaks to him and says, this man with a broken leg, his name is Aaron, wakes up in the morning and uh, with his mom and his brother. It's amazing to think there's actually still places in the United States where a mother can leave the kids in the car. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have said that, but... but as he and his brother are sitting in the car, he sees a man walking with messed up leg, in pain, walking with crutches, goes up to him and says, excuse me, can I pray for you? He says, well, okay. Prays for him once, nothing happened. He says, can I pray for you again? Prays for him again. And um, uh, the man was completely healed, walking without the crutch, completely free. And he said to the man, what's your name? And he said, it's Aaron, the same name that God has spoken to him in the dream. And I, I love this because obviously there's no sophistication. He's not wondering if he's going to be able to book a concert hall, you know, <laughs> a, a, get a preaching platform next weekend. He's just saying, Lord, here am I. Use me. Yeah. So let's all stand. During worship, Pastor Mike leaned over to me and said, it feels like Easter. But Mike, I, I believe that's because in your ministry here, the ministry of the church, you're about to come into a, a greater release of God's resurrection power for healing and miracles, signs and wonders. And, um, and, uh, I've had the privilege of coming here, I don't know, five or six times in the last three. I'm about to ask Mike if he'll just give me an office somewhere, and I'll, I'll, just, I'll just hang out. <laughs> but uh, I, I want to lead you in a prayer um, before the, we, we do what we're about to do. <laughs> um, would you just close your eyes, and if you're with a family member, a spouse, or if the person next to you does not look too obnoxious, uh, join a hand with them. And uh, I want to ask you, uh, close your eyes, because I want to pray this prayer not just for a few people, but collectively for you as a congregation. And would you pray out loud after me? Father God, if in any way, if in my faith, my regard for you, I've become dulled. If any way my walk has become a thing of custom rather than a joy, I repent. And I ask that you would awaken me in a way I've never experienced about your majesty, your authority, your beauty. Your power. your power. And Father, even, even as Isaiah 
beheld your glory and said, Woe is me. But he also said, Here am I, Lord. Send me. I echo the prayer of that 11-year-old boy. Would you use me, Lord, to do the impossible? Just allow the Holy Spirit right where you're at to fill you right now in the name of Jesus. Whether you're in the back of the room, the left, the front, the side, the center, just allow a bit of the glory of the Lord. In fact, I'm not even going to take any time on this because I see the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon a number of you right now. And I'm just going to go for it. We're not going to waste any time. If the Spirit of the Lord is on you, uh, get out from your seat where you're standing and come to the front right now. There's an anointing here, uh, a, God, a breakthrough of God's presence. Just push your way up. You can be rude. The kingdom of God suffers violence, Jesus said. Just hold your hands out again to the Lord. Whether you came forward or didn't come forward, just hold your hands out. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for the privilege of being with this church. And I thank you, Lord, that you have more for them than their eyes have seen, more than their ears have heard, more than they can possibly understand. And so, Father, straight out of Ephesians 3, Lord, we give glory to you, the one who can do far more. Say far more. The one who can do far more than we can think or ask according to your power that moves through us. Come, Holy Spirit. I ask you to begin to fill people whether they came forward or didn't, would you begin to rust upon people? Let your glory begin to break loose here. Come, streams of living water from the throne of God. Come, Holy Spirit. Would you begin to fill people? I ask you to fill people right now in the name of Jesus. Would you take people into a Joshua experience of beholding the warrior of the lion of the tribe of Judah, Lord God. Come, Holy Spirit, let your power, let your majesty begin to rest upon us. In the name of Jesus, come, Holy Spirit.